I'm excited this morning. Well, we're continuing on this series that we've been calling Crosswords. And in this series, we have taken the seven statements that Jesus Christ made on the cross. He's there for six hours, and he says seven statements that still impact us today. And what we're doing is we're taking those statements, we're kind of putting them under a magnifying glass. And we're saying, Jesus, what, what, what did you say to us in these last six hours of your life here on this earth. And I don't know if you've ever been in the presence of someone that was near death or not. I have many times, and often their last words are some of the most impactful words they ever uh, have spoken. And families often will cling to those words for years to come. The last words can be powerful. And such is the case in these seven incredible statements that Jesus Christ made in the final moments of his earthly life. Now, today we are on statement number four, which is the shortest of all the seven statements. In English, it's just two words. Just two words in English. But if you, if you zoom in a little more in the Greek, which is what the New Testament, most of the New Testament is originally written in, it's actually just one word. Just a state, just a one-word statement, but it has huge implications. Let's open up our Bibles. Same chapter we were in last week, John chapter 19. John 19, verse 25 is where we'll start. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, and last week we learned that was the apostle John, he said to his mother, woman, behold thy son. Then he said to that disciple, behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. We spent the entire message last week looking at that statement, that before he dies, he uses one of his last breaths to make sure that his mama is taken care of. That's awesome, isn't it? Now, it leads us right into statement number four. Verse 28, look at this. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, or saith, I thirst. Now, there was a, a set of vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. Now, again, in the Greek, this is just one word, basically thirsty. Okay, it's just one word, thirsty. Now, I don't know if you've ever had an overly dramatic child or grandchild in your life. Anyone ever have a drama king or a drama queen in your family? We've had a few, six kids and five grandkids now. We've had a few. And every once in a while, they'll come to you with the saddest face they can ever make. They'll hold on to the kitchen counter and they'll go, thirsty. Has this ever happened to anybody? Like, if you don't give them a drink at the moment, the end is near. Right? That's, 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 the, way they, that's the way they act. Now, uh, I'm not trying to be funny this morning, especially in light of what we're studying. But the agony that our kids sometimes pretend to be in is actually the reality that Jesus is suffering in this moment. In all likelihood, he has not had anything to drink in the last 18 hours. In fact, as we're studying the scripture, the last record, 
that we have of him drinking anything is, is what we would call the Passover or the Last Supper where he gathered his disciples together and he taught them about the new covenant, how his body would be broken and his blood would be shed. And he took that bread. He said, take, eat and, uh, or take this and eat it. And he took that wine and said, here, take this and drink it. That, that was about 18 hours ago or so. So he, he's probably actually really, really thirsty. And, and here he is now hanging on the cross, and he had told them that he's going to shed his blood, and here he is shedding it. The crown of thorns was forced on his head, and so he's bleeding from his head. Uh, the cat of nine tails was used to whip his back 39 times, and so his back is a bloody mess. His hands and his feet are nailed to the cross, and so there's blood coming from them. And, and so this powerful moment in the Last Supper leads up to this powerful moment where Jesus is hanging on the cross, nearing the end of this six-hour ordeal. Of course, he's dehydrated. Of course, he's thirsty. And in a voice, what is, what's most likely just a whisper, he says, Thirsty. Just, just, just one word. Just one word. Thirsty. But the implications are huge. First of all, look back at verse 28. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. When we started this series, I told you that many of the statements that Jesus made from the cross were, in fact, prophecies from the Old Testament. Now, this is awesome for several reasons. Number one, it proves to us what we would say is the inerrancy of the Bible. Inerrancy of the Bible. Inerrancy simply means that the Bible is true and it can be trusted. Now, when, when I grew up um, in the circle that I lived in, if, if you said the Bible said something, people just believed it. Okay, they just believed it. it. It meant something. It was held in, in a high regard. Again, I'm sure there were people in my day who were questioning the word of God. But in the circle that I grew up in, if you said, well, the Bible says this, I mean, even non-believers, they, they wouldn't really argue with you. They held it in a high regard. They, they had respect for it. But in our day today, that's not the case. And in fact, one of the ways that people attempt to criticize the Christian faith is by attacking the Bible. They question its integrity. They question its authority. They will spend years trying to disprove it. It's no longer considered the word of God by many people, including leaders in churches today. In some progressive churches, they don't believe the Bible is infallible. They don't believe it's the word of God. But one of the things that reassures us as Christians that the Bible is not just true. It's truer than that. It's truth. Is the sheer volume of things that were prophesied in the Old Testament and then fulfilled in the New Testament and then verified by history. Church, let me assure you, our Bibles can hold up under any amount of scrutiny. It, they can because there's, there's no book in history that's been questioned more than the Holy Bible, yet it has stood the test of time. And today, do you know what will happen around the world today? Millions of people will open it, they will read it, and they will be changed. Because you can ban it, you can burn it, you can question it, you can deny it, you can ignore it, but you cannot stop it. It is the Word of God. And this morning, our Bibles are like the roar of the lion of the tribe 
of Judah, it will jump off the pages and save some souls. It will deliver the tormented. It will comfort the afflicted. It will give some hope to the hopeless, and it will bring some new life to the dead. Can we thank God for the Bible today? Now, listen, you might be here and you might be a non-believer and say, they're cheering for a book. No, you don't understand. The fathers and mothers of our faith who lived in previous generations died because they wanted to take the word of God and put it in the hands of people just like you and I. They had to die so that we could have a Bible. And today, many of us have eight of them in our house and never open it up. I'm going to tell you, friend, you got the word of God in your house. You need to open that thing up. You need to get it down on the inside of you. You need to stand on it. You need to walk in it and you need to obey it. So again, it's become a trend to question the Bible, but I also see another trend finding its way into some churches, and that is actually to try and separate Jesus Christ from the Bible. They attempt to lift him out of the context of Scripture so that they can define him in a way that better fits with their political ideology. And they especially want to separate him from that pesky Old Testament. You see, if you separate Jesus from the Bible, you can drape any flag you want over him. But friends, this short phrase, I thirst or thirsty, is not merely the utterance of a dehydrated man. The scripture tells us that Jesus is uttering this word in order to fulfill an Old Testament scripture found in Psalm 69. This is how committed Jesus was to the scriptures. Many of the Psalms are what we would call messianic or prophetic Psalms. Okay, they might have been written by David a thousand years earlier, but they were pointing to Jesus. And Psalm 69 is one of these. In fact, I believe it was one of Jesus' favorite Psalms because he quotes it several times in his life. Let's take a look at Psalm 69. He says this, I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. Verse 20, reproach has broken my heart and I'm full of heaviness. And I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Verse 21, here we go. They gave me also gall for my meat or my food. And in my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. That's Psalm 69. Written a thousand years before, look at our scripture again, John 19, verse 29. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. Friends, Jesus knows he's about to die, but he also knows Psalm 69. And in order to fulfill the scripture, he says, thirsty. He knows that the soldier who does not know the will of God, will respond to him who does know the will of God. Oh, my, 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 that'll preach right there. God even uses clueless people to fulfill his will. Jesus says, thirsty. And the soldier puts some vinegar on a sponge and puts it to his mouth, unknowingly fulfilling a thousand-year-old prophecy. That's God, and that's awesome. 
Friends, in our current trend of trying to separate Jesus from the Bible, I just want to remind you this morning that Jesus knew the Bible, he read the Bible, he memorized the Bible, he taught the Bible, he quote the Bible, and he fulfilled the prophecies within it. If Jesus Christ held the Bible in that high of a regard, so should we. Can I get an amen this morning? So our first major takeaway from I thirst is that we can trust the word of God. We'll say that again. First major takeaway from I thirst is that we can trust the word of God because we're living in a day that the word of God is going to be questioned over and over and over again. And you've got to know that you know that you know that you know that it is the word of God, that you can live it, that you can fulfill it, that you can walk it out, and you can stand on the promises contained in it. Again, can you say amen one more time? All right. Now, the second thing that I want to talk to you about is a a very, very important doctrine in our Christian faith, and it's called hypostatic union, okay? Hypostatic union. That's a big term, and I'm a hillbilly So I have wrestled all week trying to figure out a way to explain this. Hypostatic union. Guys, let's put up our graphic here. Hypostatic union is a a, a theological term, but I'm praying the Lord will help us understand it. So when Jesus says, I thirst, in that little phrase, we are seeing the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. That he is one person with two natures. On one hand, he's fully God. He's not part God. He's not 50% God. He's fully God. But on the other hand, he's fully man. He's not kind of a man. You know, he's fully man. He is eternal on one hand. He's always been. He's always existed. He's not created. He is eternal. But on the other hand, there was a time and space that he stepped into history and became flesh. He is the son of God, but he's also the son of man. This is what we call hypostatic union. Let's look at it in Scripture. Let's go to John chapter 1 in verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When it's talking about the Word here in John 1, it's talking about Jesus. Okay? So he was there in the beginning with God, verse 2 says. Verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. You got that? Everything we can see and even the things we cannot see were made through him. Nothing was made without Christ. So this is referring to Jesus, the eternal one. He's not created. He is eternally existent. Everything we see is made through him. He's 100% God. But now let's look at verse 14. It says, in the word, and the word, Jesus, became flesh And dwelt among us. So what's happening here? The eternal Jesus, who's always been, at some point in time, which is about 2,000 years ago, he actually stepped in to this world being fully human and fully God. He came into a specific time and a specific place so that he could live and dwell and walk among us. He didn't become God. He's always been God, but he did become flesh. 
so he could dwell among us. So in this one passage, we see that Jesus is fully God and fully human. Let me give you, uh, let me give you uh, another example to help us see this truth in real time. Uh, does anyone remember a guy in the Bible by the name of Lazarus? Right? So Jesus did not have a lot of friends, close friends, while he was here on this earth. He, he lived here about 33 years. We know it, at one point he was, he was kind of a rock star preacher and thousands of people were following him. But as we've seen, especially toward the end of his life, many of those people, they left him. They criticized him. They ended up hating them, hating him. Even the, the people that he ministered to, he, he was all alone there at the cross other than five people. So he just had a few close friends, but one of them was this guy by the name of Lazarus. And Jesus was in another town, and they sent word to Jesus. They said, Jesus, you got to come quickly. Lazarus is really, really sick, and he's going to die if you don't get there. Well, you know, in the sovereignty of God, Jesus, he did not get in a rush. He took his good old time. And, and by the time he's getting close to where Lazarus is, they came and they gave him word. They said, they said Master, no need to come now. No need to come. You can go back to doing what you were doing. Lazarus, your friend, he's dead. You guys remember this story? And so Jesus kept coming, and the Bible tells us that Jesus, hearing the news of Lazarus dying, stands outside of his tomb, and he weeps. Jesus cries. He grieves the loss of his friend. So in that moment, we see the humanity of Jesus. He's fully man. He feels what we feel. He's, his humanity is there. He is weeping over the loss of his friend. But Ron, almost immediately, the God-man, Jesus Christ, looks into the tomb where there's a dead man who's been in there for days. He looks into the eyes of death and he boldly says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out looking like a mummy. He is wrapped in grave clothes. And Jesus has to say, loose him and let him go. So let me show you this. In, in two different breaths, like in, in one moment, Jesus is there crying, weeping over his friend. That's the fully human Jesus. But in the next breath, he is raising the dead. That's the fully God Jesus. Big term for it, hypostatic union, but, but bringing it down to simple terms. He's fully God. He's fully man. Let me give you, let me give you another example. How about when, when he goes in John chapter 4 to the, the woman at the well? He's, he's thirsty. The Bible says he's thirsty. And so he goes to the well to get a drink. In his humanity, he simply needs a drink of water. But in his divinity, he meets this troubled woman who has uh, been married five times. She's now living with a guy that she's not married to. Ladies and gentlemen, do not adopt her style of dating. Take no relationship advice from this gal. Say amen. He meets her and he says to her, if you drink of the water I give, you will never thirst again. Wait, wait a minute, Jesus. You're at the well because you yourself are thirsty. But now you're offering a drink of what you call living water that will quench this woman's thirst forever? What in the world is going on? 
Well, it's the two natures of Jesus Christ. On one hand, his humanity is thirsty. But on the other hand, his deity offers this woman a a drink of living water that will heal her unhealthy need for the affections of a man and fill her brokenness, not with another man, but with the love of God. In the same scripture, the same interaction, we see him as a thirsty Jesus, and we see him as the fountain of living water that will never run dry. So why is this big fancy term? Okay, preacher. All right, I hear you. All right. But, but why does it matter? If this wasn't true, we wouldn't be saved. You see, before Jesus came, before he became flesh, there was no human mediator between God and man. In fact, Job in the Old Testament said it this way, and I'm just going to read the scripture to you. We don't have to put it up. But Job says this in Job 9, verse 32. He says, For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator, listen to this, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Job says there's no one on the face of this planet, and Job was right in his day. There was no one on the face of the planet who could put a hand on God and put a hand on man at the same time. They didn't exist. They weren't there. Job was right. But Job was also prophetic because he ended up ending his writing by saying this. For I know, though, that my Redeemer lives. <laughs> That's what he said. He said, and he shall stand at last on the earth. Before the cross of Christ, there was no one who could heal the broken relationship between God and man. But God so loved the world that he sent his only son to do it. And listen, here, you're going to hear in the world that we're living in, with all, it's a marketplace of ideas, it's a marketplace of religions, it's a marketplace of, of uh, you know, different ideologies that are out there. You're going to hear things like, you know what, brother, you just believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe and all roads lead to God. No, they don't. No, they don't. No, they don't. There is only one mediator, one great high priest, one lamb of God who was worthy to die for us, and he did. Only one. Hebrews 2, look at verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he, the he being Jesus, had to be made like his brethren. Aren't you humbled? When you would read in the Bible... That Jesus calls us family. You ever walked into a party or an event or a function and and you felt like you didn't belong there? Maybe it was a little over your head. You ever read a menu and, Norm, you couldn't pronounce anything on the menu? You ever sat down at a table, and I mean your anxiety rise up because you don't know what to do with this fancy napkin, and you have no idea what fork to use. I just watch, and I try to look at the people beside me. What fork are they using? I don't know. Do I do the big one for the salad and the smile? I don't know what to do. I'm just in a place where I don't belong. You want to talk about in a place that you don't belong? In your flesh, in my flesh, in our own righteousness, we don't belong in the family of God. But we have a high priest who is an awesome big brother who says, you know what? I'm going to die to give you entrance to my father's table. He's the only one who's done that. Therefore, in all things, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren 
that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, another big word, another big word, but it's, it, it's covering or some, some translations would even say removal of the sins of the people. Verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is then able to aid those who are also tempted. That's good news. Let's think about it for a moment. Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, thirsty. He's God. This week I started thinking about all the things he did with water throughout Scripture. If Jesus in his deity wanted water in that moment, he could have commanded it to rain. He could have have created it out of his sweat. He could have created it out of his blood. He could have done whatever he wanted. He's God. Just think about the fact he's the one who invented rain. He's the God who parted the Red Sea. He's the God who sometimes would cause a drought or sometimes command a flood. He's the God that made water come from a rock in the desert. He is the fountain of life. He's the one that can turn water into wine. He's the one who walks on water. And and the Bible says today he sits on a throne, and from under that throne flows the river of water. If he wanted water, all he would have had to do was command it, and he would have had it. But in this moment, he's our mediator. He is the one bridging the gap between God and man. So he is allowing himself to feel what we feel. And not only is Jesus, our Christ, feeling a natural thirst, he is permitting himself to feel our separation from God. He is experiencing something so much deeper than a dry mouth. He's taking on a deep suffering in his soul, paying the price for our sin. He is rejected so we could be accepted. And for the first time in eternity, he knows what it feels like to have a thirsty soul. This is why hypostatic union is so important. He had to be God so he could forgive us. But he had to be human so he would know what it was like to be tempted. He had to be God so that he could heal us. But he had to be human so he knows what it's like to suffer pain. He had to be God so he could be our comforter. But he had to be human so he would know what it was like to feel the sorrow that we feel. I need a couple of volunteers. Would you guys come on up? Can you guys light up the back of the stage here? near this cross if you're able to just bring up all the lights. You're in it. Come on, come over here. <laughs> That's all right, come over here. All right, I need you to come over here by Carol. Now, Adam, I've known you for a few years now. Adam has a great reputation in our community. People say great things about you. Do you believe you can play the part of God the Father today? Perhaps I should ask your wife. (laughs) 
Step back just a little bit. I want you to be right here. Come to me right there. Right there. You're, you're God the Father. Or Mark. I've known you for a few years. I asked Carol. Carol said, please don't choose him. But I did anyway for the illustration. Could you play the part of God the Son, Jesus Christ? All right. Now, Melissa and Carol, I need you all to play the part of broken humanity. Your husbands both told me you were qualified. Can you, can you do this today? All right, all right, all right. Now, again, before Christ, there is no one, according to Job, who could touch the hand of God and touch the hand of broken humanity. Nobody could do it. Nobody could do it. There was no one worthy to do it. So what did God do? He loved so much that he took his son, the eternal one, who's fully God, and made him in time and space to be fully man so that he could take his divine hand and put it in the hand of the divine and then take his fully human hand and put it in the hand of broken humanity. So when Jesus Christ is saying, I thirst, to the Father, he's saying, Father, I submit to your plan. I take on their sin. I will obey even if it costs me my life. Father, I will be rejected so they can be accepted. Father, for the joy that is set before me, I will first despise the shame of the cross and their sin. I will do that for the joy that is set before me. That's what I first was saying to God the Father. But what he was saying to us is when Jesus said, I thirst to broken women and men like us, what was he saying? He was saying, I care. What he, what he was saying is, he was saying, Melissa, everything you walk through, I've been there with you. I know what it's like to be betrayed. I know what it's like to feel pain. I know what it's like to feel lost. He's saying, Carol, even things that were happening to you when you were a child, Jesus is saying, I identify with you. I'm going to walk the walk that you walk. Church, the only one in history who has ever been exclusively qualified to take a divine hand and put it in the hand of a holy God and take a human hand and put it into the hands of broken humanity is Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. He's the only one. 